0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me. Hope that you're on your third cup. I am reaching probably for my fourth here in a minute. It has been a busy day. Grabbed two at the house, one at Zoe's house as I was running some errands. Now I am back in my basement recording the podcast with my five-year-old, sitting right next to me because it's take your child to do the podcast day and he's doing awesome and in fact he's doing so well that you don't hear him that's that's what a great kid this is hey i wanted to invite you to our christmas eve services on the 24th we are going to meet for carols and candles and the reading of the story at 4 and five thirty p.m we're going to be at uh, the international house of prayer university enter in through the main door but we need you to register for seats because we're going to do this the safe way. We're doing a limited number of seats and we're doing masks and we are scattering people across quite a large room. And so, seating is limited, but we have some for you and we would love for you to join us. If you go to thebridgekc.church, that's thebridgekc.church, you can register for seats. And uh, we would love to just celebrate Christmas Eve with you. It's going to be a lot of fun, 40, 45 minutes in and out, just uh, some time to sing together. Uh, We do want to ask you to wear masks. Everyone wearing masks with the recent rise in the virus counts, it just makes sense for all of us. So let's be safe, but we hope to see you on Christmas Eve, 4 or 5.30. You can find tickets at thebridgekc.church. Diving into some teaching from last Sunday from Isaiah 9 is where you're talking about the promises of Christmas in the Old Testament. Isaiah said, for unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. It speaks both to his origin and his form. He was a human baby, but he was also the son of God. Fascinating stuff. Stay with us. I told you, uh, Isaiah 8, go to 9. Now that I told you 8, go to 9. And I have asked um, David Carnes to read a passage this morning. And then we're going to back up and kind of ramp up into it. Uh, But he's going to start with Isaiah 9, 2 to 7.
1: All right. Can you hear me okay? Perfect. All right. Randy, before I do that, I have to say you were talking about masks as I was logging in. I just automatically grabbed my mask and put it on because uh, I knew I was going to be around other people, but I, I think natural. we're safe <laughs> in this setting.
0: <laughs> I, it's If we can catch it this way, we are hosed. It's over. Like, <laughs> I just thought that surrender. was so
1: funny. <laughs> I was just so automatic and we're accustomed to it. So uh, anyway, all right. Isaiah, Isaiah nine, two through seven. Uh, so on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, God, um, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this, um, this message of hope and of peace and of joy and um, this has been with the pandemic and everything that's been going on this past year. I mean, it's been, there has been darkness, but also God, there has been joy. There has been light and you have shown us that there is light in you. So father, um, we thank you for this time. We thank you for zoom. We thank you for this growing body. Um, and even though we, um, even though Zoom is not the ideal method of of connecting, you have promised wherever two or more are gathered that you will be there. And so Lord, we pray for your presence when not only with us as individuals, but us collectively as we connect with you, we connect with our families, we we connect with those around us. And I pray that you will help us to connect and find ways uh, within this body uh, through zoom, that we find ways to connect uh, and, and continue to develop those relationships that you have called us into. So father bless this time and bless this season. And we uh, rejoice in the light that you have given us in Jesus. Holy name. We pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Uh, want to back up just a little bit and give you um, a sense of context here of why we're studying the Christmas passages the way we're studying them. Uh, And it is my earnest desire for us to put Christmas in context to our entire lives and not just associate it with um, how we've always grown up or what it meant to us as kids. Wednesday, I was reading an article on Christmas shopping, and I realize as I say that how exciting that makes me sound, but I was reading an article on Christmas shopping and Christmas advertising. And they made the point that the best Christmas advertising has nothing to do with the price or the value or the availability or even with the product. That the best Christmas advertising on the long run was all about emotion because Christmas makes us feel deeply. That's why people who never darken the door of a church most of the year show up at a cathedral or at a church that they grew up on grew up in on Christmas Eve. It's because they want to revisit how they grew up, or maybe how they thought the Waltons grew up if they didn't have that same experience that everybody else had. And it's endearing to them. It is steeped in romance, and it's steeped in nostalgia, and it's why every Hallmark movie in the world is exactly the same. It's that dream of perfection and a better way that we lived, even if we never actually lived that way. We thought somebody did, and we want to revisit it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that particularly in a year like we're living, it's inadequate. The most wonderful news you could imagine viewed through a fisheye romantic lens, and it doesn't do it justice. And here's the difficulty, is the romantic notion of Jesus incarnation will not carry you through the battles of life. Don't bet your future on an understanding of Jesus that's primarily formed by advertising or even warm feelings of what your childhood was like. Because what is coming to the earth, what is coming to our lives, even in the natural course of life, will be so disruptive that just being a fan of Christmas or just leaning into him in that season will not be enough to carry you. And here's where people break down. It's not hard to love a baby in a manger, but most are less enthusiastic about a man preaching humility or hanging on the cross, and they're really disinterested in him marching into Jerusalem at the end of the age with blood on his robes. He goes from being a man, to a baby, to dying on a cross, to reinvading the earth, but it's all the same Jesus that we fall in love with at Christmas. Some of you think, you're trying to destroy Christmas. No, I'm not trying to destroy Christmas. I'm trying to make it matter every day. There is so much that we associate with Christmas in the ways of trees and garland and pageantry, and I love those things. I just can't hang life on them. So that said, the traditional Christmas passages that we read every year really do matter. They just matter more than our emotions give them space for if it's all about just our family traditions and our expectations. So we're going to do a quick recap because this is part two of last week when we talked about the passage declaring that a baby would be born and his name would be called Emmanuel. The prophet Isaiah said to the king Ahaz, who was on the verge of being overrun by his Syrian enemies and his family from the northern country, he said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Remember in Isaiah 7, we learned about how The people of God had split into two kingdoms, northern and the southern. And the southern faced destruction from multiple enemies. King Ahaz in the south was relatively new, and Isaiah offered him a sign that God would be with him, but Ahaz refused. He had already made a political alliance with everyone's enemy, Assyria, and paid the king of Assyria off with gold that came from the house of God. I mentioned it last week, but it goes. Uh, bears mentioning, again, there are things within your household, in your physical domain, and in your heart that uniquely belong to God, money, talent, even parts of your own soul and spirit. And any time we take those things and re, 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 reappropriate them to other things, even in the name of self-preservation, we're making a deal with the devil. And it proved to be true in this case. The king of Assyria was not satisfied with the lump sum payment that King Ahaz gave him. And the king of Assyria decided, that's a great down payment. You can pay me that every year. So for the short term, destruction was coming to the northern kingdom and to Syria, who were threatening the southern kingdom. And King Ahaz asked, was asked by Isaiah, what sign do you want that God is going to deliver you? Of course, Ahaz refused, but the twofold sign came anyway. His enemies really were destroyed, and he received the prophecy of the baby to be born, Emmanuel, God with us. So we're headed to chapter 9, where there's another prophetic message there from Isaiah. But as long as we're in the neighborhood, we're going to stop at 8 really quickly, because chapter 9 starts with the word nevertheless, or but, depending on which version you read. I think the ESV is but, and NIV is nevertheless. It's a huge red flag that chapter eight continues uh, or carries some serious information. If you were watching a movie and you went to get popcorn and you came back and the scene started with, nevertheless, you would go, wait, I I missed something. I had to back this up here. If you're married and you're daydreaming and when you come to, you hear your spouse say, and besides, you know that you missed something that you want to go back and go, "I, I really need to know the whole conversation here. So we're going to look at chapter eight, just in a nutshell, read a couple of verses so that we understand what the nevertheless is about in nine. Isaiah eight is marked as the fulfillment of Isaiah's word against Syria and Israel or the Northern kingdom. It's what he told Ahaz is coming and it's part prophetic word, part pageant. God really is into pageantry. And God tells Isaiah to make a poster in the form of a legal document telling the people what's about to happen. And God tells him, it's a binding legal document. And Because it's a legal document, you need a witness. And God says, I'm so confident in this, I'll sign it myself. So God signs the contract with Isaiah that he is going to devastate the northern kingdom and Syria. He then goes on to explain why he is judging the northern kingdom, and ultimately will also judge the southern kingdom, in Isaiah 8, verse 6. And this is one of those things that you can read over and go, I don't know what that means, I'll just keep going but it actually carries a lot of wallop. Isaiah 8, 6, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Ramallah. And then he goes on to talk about why he's going to devastate them. You're like, what are the waters of Shiloh? What on, how on earth, what are they refused here that God is so frustrated with them? At the time of this prophecy. The water source for the area of Jerusalem was an area called the Gihon Spring. It was one of the world's largest intermittent springs. Three to five times a day, the water level would rise out of the hole and it would run down the hill. And that's what provided water for Jerusalem. It was, they were considered the waters of Shiloh. And living in an arid climate, people tend to get a little nervous about the water supply. And not long after this, probably 30 years or so after this was prophesied, they actually built a reservoir in the lowest place in Jerusalem, so that when the water ran down the hill, they could capture as much of it as they possibly could. 700 years later, the New Testament authors would refer to this as the Pool of Siloam. When we hear of the Pool of Siloam and the people getting healed there, that was the pool that would fill when the waters of Shiloh would overflow. The Pool of Siloam was built to hold the overflow, particularly for the hot times of the year uh, when they were concerned they were going to run out of water. Also, about 30 years later, uh, Hezekiah led an, uh, an effort to dig a tunnel into the side of the spring and bring that all in to Jerusalem. But right now, it rises and it supplies Jerusalem and they always have enough. But for those who had seen the raging rivers of other lands... For those that had traveled and seen what massive rivers look like, it never seemed like it was enough. God's people tend to grow weary from how, for how God provides, even when he gives them everything they need. In Numbers 11, when the Lord was providing manna from out of thin air on a daily basis, the people grew weary of manna. Now, never before had food simply appeared out of nowhere, and there was always enough for them but they were dissatisfied. Were they hungry? No, they weren't hungry at all. Were they miraculously provided for? Absolutely, but they were dissatisfied. Just like the people of Israel were dissatisfied with the waters of Shiloh in Isaiah 8, they were dissatisfied in Numbers 11 because of the idea that somewhere, someone might have it a little bit better than they did. They even went to say that maybe even those in slavery have it better than we do because at least they have something of a variety. There's something about the human heart that would choose to be bound if it would mean they would be entertained. It's funny how this miracle, even the miracle of the provision of Jesus, seemed to dissolve in light of what we think somebody else has. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had river envy. Some of them had traveled and had been to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is founded on the Tigris River. It's about a 1,000 feet wide, and it flows all year long. Some of them had traveled into the Assyrian Empire, and they had seen the Euphrates. Back then, the Euphrates was about 1,500 feet wide. It was uh, about as wide as the Mississippi is in St. Louis, for those of you that have crossed. And in the whole land of Israel, they didn't have a river like the Euphrates Or the Tigris, they had Shiloh. A hole in the ground. Water came out of it three and five times a day. Did we have enough water? Yes, we always had enough water. But we didn't have water like they did in Nineveh. We didn't have water like they did in Assyria. Did you have everything you need? Yes, but it's not like they have. In their mind, somebody had it better. And if somebody else had it better, what they had was not enough. Those of you with children will recognize this phenomenon. If you have two kids that you're sending to the movies, and you know it's $8 to get into the movies, and they need $5 for snacks, it's $13. They can go have a good time. You give one of them $15, and because you don't have the right amount, you give the other one $20. They both have enough, and they're still going to fight. Because one of them has this idea that somebody else got something. No, it's, it all belongs to dad. It's all coming back. When you're done at the movies, you're giving me the change. No, I didn't get what the other one got. Historically, for people plagued with envy and boredom, those two things have been a gateway into idolatry. They just wear us down, the idea that we're envious and we're bored with what we have. We can't handle time on our hands. And we can't handle one having something better than we do. God here is using the difference between the small, humble, but adequate waters of Shiloh to the big uncontrolled rivers of Assyria to make a point. He's saying, if you don't like what I have given you, if you persist in rejecting what I give you, I will give you something different, but I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like that either. It's very interesting. The waters of Shiloh, Gihon Spring had another name. They also knew it as the Virgin's Spring. They were rejecting cool water from the virgin spring because they wanted something else. These were the same people who had heard the word of the Lord. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And their dissatisfaction with the waters of Shiloh were a premonition of their dissatisfaction with the baby boy who would be born of a virgin mother. And I'm not saying they even fully understood it on the day that he said it. But it's still true. Near the end of Isaiah, the prophet tells the southern kingdom just how dissatisfied they will be with his perfect plan of sending Jesus. So much that they'll struggle to stand in their dissatisfaction. They'll be so unhappy with how deliverance comes. Isaiah 8, 13 to 15 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This is describing Jesus. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. To both houses of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and shall be snared and be taken. This became true as Jesus was born and grew, and matured, and tr- and traveled and ministered. He was increasingly in irritation to the people in charge. So much they couldn't see the hand of God in his life, and they stumbled over him. Later, the apostle Peter would write. In 1 Peter 2, 7 to 8, So is the honor for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. So the waters of Shiloh, which were a point of contention to those northern and southern tribes about uh, how God provided, were symbolic of that which would come from the Virgin Mary and offer them all new life if they were just satisfied with him. Now, here's something interesting that I read this week as well. Those rivers that they were so envious of, the Tigris and the Euphrates, in 2020, they're drying up. From the British newspaper, The Independent, it says dams built upriver in Turkey, Syria, and Iran have since the 1970s reduced the flow of water that reaches Iraq, which is where these rivers were, by as much as half, and the situation is about to get worse. This dissatisfaction with how God provided is the setting that Isaiah pans back and he releases a prophecy in Isaiah 9 that will apply for them. 700 years down the road and it bridges the time between this age and the next. God sets the stage with a passage from Isaiah 9 that David read earlier this morning. And he starts addressing the northern kingdom. Have you ever heard the phrase the future's so bright I got to wear shades? That was not the case for the northern kingdom. In fact, the future for the northern kingdom was very dark. They were going under judgment first. But the ultimate result was that region would be one of great revelation or understanding of who Jesus was 700 years later. Things had to get better for them to get worse. The northern area included the region of Galilee, where seven centuries later, Jesus would conduct a significant amount of his ministry there. In his gospel, Matthew wrote that Jesus did this in part to fulfill the words of Isaiah. And Matthew Quotes Isaiah 9:2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Matthew was referring to that area of the northern kingdom. It says it's very dark now, doesn't look good, but when Jesus comes, they will receive him and they will see the light that he brings. Things look dark now, but he will shine on us. Uh, John 8:12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus comes as the baby to shine light into the darkest places of our lives. You know, this year has been such an odd one that you're almost learning when you ask someone how you're doing, you might actually get an honest answer. A couple of years ago, you asked, puppy, we're doing fine. Everybody was fine, you know, and now you ask a stranger, how are you doing? You're like, my life's falling apart. The whole world's gone to pot. It's exposed the fact that we're stumbling in darkness. And Matthew goes from quoting this passage, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. He goes from quoting that passage right into saying the message that Jesus would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven Is at hand. Those in darkness would see a great light, and the light would preach warm fuzzies. No, the light would preach to them repent. Let me hold you into account for your sin. Let me shine a light on where you're going wrong. Let's get you on the right path. Christmas is not about a romantic story. It's about the birth of a king who shines light in dark places and exposes sin. And then when that sin is exposed, he announces his authority and his kingdom and offers to those who were in darkness just a minute ago a way to participate in his kingdom of light. No other king conquers this way by letting you join the winning side. That's not how war is waged. Terms of surrender for a war can look a lot of different ways. For instance, World War II ended with the Potsdam Declaration. Potsdam Declaration was a document that was signed by the leaders of Japan to bring World War II to an end in the Pacific arena. And it was pretty strong. It was clear they had to dismantle their army. They had no army for 60 years, and even now what they have is only a defensive force. They had to surrender their sovereignty over islands that were so numerous that they couldn't even put a number on them and had to shrink back to the main four islands. And what that declaration was clear about, like their sovereignty and their reducing them back to their four islands, pales in comparison to what it was unclear about because nowhere in the agreement that Japan signed was there any mention that they would ever govern themselves again. The United States was going to come in and rewrite their society and their government, and then we'd see how it goes if we'd ever let them lead their own country again. The phrase in the declaration that the Japanese needed to sign was unconditional surrender. Now, sometimes surrender from war is a little easier. It's likely that no earthly Leader got as much flack for how they allowed the enemy to surrender than U.S. Grant, General Grant at Appomattox, let all of the Confederacy go back to their farms and let them keep their horses and their guns. But this king prophesied in Isaiah 9, after shining a light on sin and saying, "We've we've got to deal with this, not only deals with people's sin, shines a great light on their dark lives, he then encourages them, if you unconditionally surrender, You actually get to be somebody in my kingdom. You don't just go home to your farms with your guns and your horses. You don't have to uh, live a life wondering how you fit in. No, no, no. You surrender, I'll make a place for you. He invites them into the kingdom, and Isaiah continues describing what Jesus would do in that kingdom. Isaiah 9, 3 to 5. You shall multiply the nation. He shall increase their gladness. You will be glad in, they will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You know, there are words that as in the English language, we've just diluted. You know, um, there was a day when awesome referred to having awe and now who knows what it means because it's used constantly. But even the words like happy, we have morphed and depending on the tone of voice when it is used, it can mean so many different things are you happy? And are you happy? Are completely different senses. And even within the idea of the positive connotation of happy, there are degrees of happiness. You can eat a hot dog, and it makes you happy. You can get a good job review, and it makes you happy. Or you can be happy with your life situation. The happy or joy that he is describing here is not of a small degree. The joy of entering into God's kingdom is not some Pie in the sky happiness, or yeah, it's a pretty good day. It is called like the gladness of the harvest. Now, if you didn't grow up in an agricultural background, you don't know what it's like to actually get a good harvest because the chances against it are astronomical. There are so many things that can go wrong in agriculture that when it actually works, you're surprised. I remember seeing my dad's face when the harvest was ripe and there were storm clouds on the horizon and hail could wipe out a year's work in a moment but when we were able to gather a crop there was this moment of joy that feels like you have beaten all of the odds the prophecy from isaiah is the joy that will come in the service of jesus will exceed the joy of a farmer who finally gets to the end of the growing season and actually has a good crop Isaiah goes on to describe this kingdom and the activity of this king who's going to bring much joy. Isaiah 9, 4, and 5. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the, and the staff of their, on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the, at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Every man, woman, and child lives with a burden of responsibility on their heart that is too much to bear. They were born into it, and they add to it with their own sin. And some of it come across feeling just like the cares of life, but much of it is based on our own fallen nature and our ache for a God that we can't approach because there's too much wrong with us. And here Jesus promised to be the king that finally breaks that yoke of sin that has hung on people's necks since the fall of man. Isaiah describes it as, as the battle of Midian, referencing Judges 7, where God defeats the Midianites with just a little band of warriors, But in the battle that Isaiah is talking about, it isn't one battle in a series of battles. It is a final battle. Even the enemy's bloody clothes and coats are burned in a bonfire because they're not going to need them anymore. The enemy isn't going home with their guns and horses. The enemy isn't even promised occupation by another force. The enemy, in this case, sin, is defeated once and for all, and it's gone. Now, I can imagine at this point, those in the crowd that are hearing Isaiah then are understanding it, are really excited. Like, this is great news. When? And more importantly, how? Do we, do we gather weapons? Do we strategize? We schedule a Zoom? How do we work together to make this happen? Because they're ready to fight. With all of their attention drawn to the very edge and the promise of breaking this yoke off of their neck, Isaiah continues with the who and the how. And knowing all of this is why you'll never be content to contextualize this as a Christmas card verse again. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. I can almost picture the crowd go, excuse me? What? You just described someone who's going to break the bonds of sin off of us and going to set us free and set us up for a thousand year reign. And you're sending a kid, like a child. People were probably confused, maybe even a little disappointed. What would a child do in calling him a child and a son in that passage? It sounds like it's redundant, doesn't it? He's a child and he's a son. Okay. He's a little guy, but Isaiah is talking about two different things there. And we learn, he's talking about his form that he'll come in. But also his origin. He is in the form of a born child with all of the peculiarities of that. Do you ever really think about Jesus as a baby beyond Christmas? I mean, Jesus is a four month old. He cried. Jesus had physical characteristics. We learned later as an adult, he got hungry and he got tired. So it's logical to assume that as a baby, he did that and he got fussy. Jesus kept his parents up at night. But his origin is like no other child, because he is also a son. Now, they're not talking about him as the son of Joseph. They wouldn't even know who, like, who's Joseph? We don't know who Joseph is. They're talking about him as the son of God. That's the Messiah that's about to be born. Repeatedly, when the Bible speaks of Jesus coming to Earth, it goes out of its way to point out He wasn't just a man; He wasn't an angelic being; He was the Son of God. When John fourteen or John starts, he writes, "The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory of the Only Begotten Father." We looked at Jesus; it was like looking at God Himself. Why does it matter? Because when you get a Son involved, you bring with that all the energy and passion of a father. Most of you have met Scout, my five-year-old, and uh, if you have, you understand he is a piece of work. He has opinions and facts and likes to share them with you. He's a talker. Um, You have no idea how much joy this kid brings me on a day-to-day basis. This week, his biggest challenge has been remembering that the word is Hanukkah, because somewhere along the line, he thought it was harmonica. And uh, so he's been celebrating harmonica for a couple of days and uh, we tried to correct him for a while. And finally we've just joined him. Happy harmonica. Okay. Happy harmonica, you know, but with my affection for scout in mind, okay. Imagine that you and scout are trapped in a burning building and I can save someone, but I only have time for one trip. I believe, I I think, I believe I have the fortitude that I could give my life for yours, that I could lay down my life to try and save you. But I don't think for a second that I could lay down the life of my son to save you. Yet Romans 8 tells us about Jesus, about God, he did not spare his own son. He surrendered the life of his son for you. That's why it matters that unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, because it took a physical physical human frame to bear our sin, but it took a divine being to walk it out. And Jesus came as both. Isaiah continues. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This is one of those phrases with you know multiple applications. Of course, it refers to his authority, especially in the age to come when he's going to sit on a real throne in Jerusalem and lead the world for a thousand year reign. Some of you thought Jesus is coming back and we're all going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp. And you smile and pretend to be happy about that, but it sounds a little boring when you're honest and you can't play the harp. That's not what's happening. If you study scripture, he's coming to set up a kingdom on the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And for that thousand year reign, we will see the perfect government of God over the hearts of men and women. No human being in history has ever seen perfect government. So as a result, we tend to deride government as if government is the problem. Government as a form is not the problem. It's that we are being governed by human beings and none are without flaws. So when they're given power, they're immediately in a wrestling match with how to handle that power for good or for self-serving. And the effect that that power has on their soul is remarkable. Some people wrestle well with it and serve well. Many wrestle miserably, but no human being can govern without their own humanity being a part of the question. It's not just that we're not perfect. We're actually deeply flawed. The government of Jesus in the age to come will be free of all flaws. It will astound conservatives for its heart, and it will astound liberals for its logic. That is the government that is coming. But he's not waiting to, to start governing when he takes control of the earth like that. He governs us today. He governs you if you let him. If you surrender to him, you live the, a life with a perfect leader. Think for a moment, what is causing you the greatest amount of angst in your life? What's causing you the biggest struggle? For most of us, it's somehow related to work, finances, or family. It's like one of those three, there's a, there's an area, it's, just, it's hard for us and he wants to lead us in those situations. Colossians 3.15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a governmental role. Let him rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. One day, Jesus will rule the earth in perfection, but you don't need to wait to sit under that leadership. You can let him rule in perfection in your life today, and the benefits of being under his authority include peace that you can't find in any other form of government. You may be wondering, will will all of my circumstances change? No, not necessarily, but you'll have peace in them. Right now, you've got chaos. He wants to lead in your life in a way to bring you peace. Isaiah continues to describe this deliverer to come, and he rattles off some names. He says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a, that's a lot of names. We have some children that we have four legal names. Uh, just because we had more names that we wanted to give them than was uh, socially conventional, so we gave them four names. And it usually works except when you're filling out forms. It, it totally breaks, and we have to figure out how, which names to pick. But we've got kids that have more than, than three names because we had more meaning we wanted to associate. We think long and hard about names. When Zoe was born, she was uh, such a testimony to us for for God's love for life. We named her Zoe, which means life. We joked that there were times we wish we would have named her Selah because that means rest. And there was a couple of years where we did not get any rest. It was all all life. And in the Bible, names are given uh, as an extension of character or of who they are. Jacob was called the grabber. Because he was born holding his twin's heel, he spent his entire life trying to take things that weren't his. His brother Esau was the hairy one. That's where that name came from. It described his very being. Jesus lives up to the names he was given because they were given as reflections of his being. He was called a wonderful counselor. Humanity has been the victim of bad counsel Since early in Genesis, we're only three chapters into the Bible when we're getting bad advice. And the serpent says to the woman, you'll not die. Isaiah was describing a man here who would give the best advice humanity would ever hear. Repent, surrender, trust, ask, seek, knock. Jesus, through those words in Scripture and how he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, continues to reflect his own character as a wonderful counselor, ask yourself in those areas of life where you have angst, what does Jesus think about my situation? Lord, what is your rule and government over my heart right now? Lord, there are other people that are choosing not to be under your authority. I place myself under your authority and under your authority, what do you want to speak to my heart? He's a wonderful counselor. Goes on to call him mighty God and everlasting father. This threw people for a curve at times. Wait, now he's a son, he's a baby, he's a son, but he's a father. How, how, and he's mighty, but he's a baby. How can he be a mighty baby? Isaiah included these names as a reflection of where Jesus came from and the power that he had. He wasn't just a gifted man, he was a representation of the Father himself. Jesus told his disciples, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The reason this baby, born of a virgin, would be able to forgive sins, set people free, was that the Son and the Father are one. Even after his resurrection, his disciples struggled with this idea. They questioned if he really was the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Even as their hearts were moved in worship, their minds questioned this. There's a passage in Matthew 28 where, this is after the resurrection. Okay, so put yourself in, in their shoes. They have seen Jesus do miracles, walk on water, bring you know fish from nowhere. They have they, they walked for three years with miracles. Then they see him die on a cross and raise again. So he's he's got some credentials here. But in Matthew 28, 17 and 18, it says, When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. like, wait, 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 How, how do you do this? You worshiped him, but you doubted, as if we have never stood in a worship service and worshiped him and doubted. The next verse says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because he had all authority, Isaiah said his name would be Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his peace, there would be no end. In other words, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he would establish it and he would be king forever. God names his own son the Prince of Peace because he will make peace and reconciling man to God and he will govern in peace forever. Over 700 years later, when the angels appear to the shepherds to declare the birth of this child, the Son of God that was given—you almost wonder if the angels had a meeting on the backside of the hill to, to think, what do we tell shepherds? What i you know know—they're—they're they're not educated. They're, what can we explain to them that will make sense? What is the biggest concept about the coming of Jesus that we can give to the most number of people that they will understand that that baby in the barn is being born, and will fill them with wonder. And it's as if an angel said, no, I've got it, I've got it. And they made a plan, and in Luke 2, 13 and 14, it says, they suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth. This is the promise that would capture their attention. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The biggest topic the angels could tackle that would touch the hearts of everyone from elite leaders down to the shepherds in Bethlehem would be the idea that this baby would bring peace on earth to the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. It would lead them to peace with his father and ultimately bring peace to the entire world when he returns. There's a book by Matthew Litt called Christmas 1945, and it writes about the peacetime Christmas immediately following world war ii the first christmas after world war ii was over the world uh, the new york daily news alerted readers to expect a fleet of warships in the new york harbor and the paper said christmas will find a mighty armada consisting of four battleships six carriers seven cruisers and 24 destroyers in the new york harbor instead of waging war The military ships hosted nearly 1,000 needy children on Christmas Day. The children's measurements had all been taken previously, so they were each given a perfectly fitted navy blue coat and cap that would be gift-wrapped and awaiting for them aboard the ships. And for the first time in history, these vessels of war were used in a celebration of peace. The prophet Isaiah predicted a future when that would be the norm when the mechanics that had been used for war would in turn be used for peace. And almost as a P.S., Isaiah adds this one little line at the end of the prophecy. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's almost like he's saying, oh, yes, yes, God has some energy on this. He's not just throwing it out there. He means this. This isn't a plan he's reluctant about. He's actually really eager because his heart is for reconciliation with man, even more than man knows that he needs it. Friends, God is excited about Christmas. He's neutral about a lot of the things we associate with it, but he's not neutral about what he meant by the birth of his son. Christmas marks the beginning of a revolution, how to overthrow the powers of darkness through his son come to earth in the most vulnerable of packages. That's why Christmas matters all year long. This morning, I want to just take a minute and pray for the government of God in our lives. That idea that yet one day, everyone around the world will be under his perfect leadership. But we can put ourselves under his leadership right now. And so as we pray, I just want you to take a moment and begin to think of the area of life That causes you the most headaches, that causes you the most frustration. Maybe um, maybe there's a relationship within your family. Uh, Maybe this year has caused great tumult in your business. Um, Maybe there's an area in your own heart where you're struggling with sin. It's dark. But you think about this a lot. Like you give significant energy to this. And we want to pray that the Lord would come and rule in peace in those areas, would give you great wisdom. I'm not telling you everything changes in a moment. I'm saying that you can have peace on the inside. And when he comes, you can navigate those things according to his spirit in a way that you could not under your own leadership. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope to see you on Christmas Eve. Go to the Bridge KC Church for seats to the four o'clock and five thirty Christmas Eve service. Have a great day.